Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 324 of Forgotten Classics, where we're close to the end, but not there yet, with Doan and Carstairs in O Murderer Mine by Norbert Davis. I don't usually dedicate episodes, but this episode is dedicated to my daughter Rose, who is a fervent Doan and Carstairs fan. She loves hard-boiled detective stories. She loves noir stories. She loves humor. So what is there not to love, as we all know already, because we're listening? But the reason it's dedicated to her is I'm recording this as I've got about three hours left before she gets home and does not go back to Los Angeles. Yes, she has said, you know what? I think it's time I came back to Dallas. And we could not be more thrilled. My husband flew out there. All her stuff is in a container, a pod, (laughs) or so in the future, you know, that was put on her lawn and she packed it up and they're going to put it on a truck and they'll get it here in, you know, I don't know, a week or two and put it on our lawn so we can unpack it. And as I said, my husband flew out there, Rose picked him up, and she and he and her boxer Zoe have been driving across the country, well, halfway across the country, to get back to Dallas. And she's going to live in her old bedroom until she kind of gets on her feet again, has looked around her and figured out what she wants to do here. And in the meantime, of course, because you cannot let these opportunities go by in life, who knows when they'll be here again, they stopped off at the Grand Canyon. So that's a little bit of my personal news. I've been spending my time getting her old room ready. And you know, I haven't had reason to go in there since I think the last time anyone was in there was when she was home for Christmas. (laughs) You know, so many spiders. I don't know what it is about that part of the house where spiders love it, but so many spiders. It was terrible. No Shelob, though, so we were safe. No Lord of the Rings situation, but just great big spiders. Now, back to what we usually do here. I'm going to give you a podcast highlight that's really a preview because the podcast hasn't started yet, but I'm super excited about it. You may remember, if you've been around long enough, (laughs) from years past, when I have mentioned the Bowery Boys. These two guys have been podcasting for years about New York City. The history, the culture, the environment, and the idea they started with, and I guess that they've continued with, is that you can walk around and, you know, see all the things they're talking about. But even as an armchair New York City traveler, you get so much out of it. I have never been to New York City. It's one of those places I would just love to go. I just feel like it must feel different when you get off the plane. Just the way Paris or London do or even New Orleans, (laughs) y'all. Anyway, this is the next best thing. Now, I was listening to their most recent one because even if I've fallen behind in my listening during the year, they do an annual Halloween show about ghosts of a particular time or area. And this one was about the Gilded Age, but at the end of it, they had a trailer, a sampler of a new spinoff podcast. 
Now, this is one of the guys, Greg Young, who is doing a podcast called The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. Let me read you their description. The first is a look at the history of inventions and innovations at the so-called moment of impact, focusing less on iconic inventors and more on the forgotten geniuses and everyday people that were responsible for bringing us the tools of the modern world. The show will also highlight those that were first affected by these inventions, for better or for worse. New technologies and ideas might have made the world a different place, but they did not always make them a better place. From the automobile to the rocket ship, from chewing gum to the TV dinner, from the first face in a photograph to the first voice on a telephone. These are the stories of the first. And if you go to either the Bowery Boys podcast or iTunes and look for the first, you will be able to hear the trailer. It's an interesting overlook at all the different kinds of things they're going to cover, or that Greg's going to cover. So keep your eyes open for that one. So let's get on with Oh Murderer Mine. Well, chapter four definitely ratcheted things up, didn't it? It's as if everybody jumped into a spa mud bath and somebody gave it a huge stir and bodies start flying out everywhere. So I really loved the description of the spa with the mirrors that show you exactly the way you look and the light that means you cannot hide a single flaw. So by the time that you get to the receptionist, you are ready to agree to anything in order to become better looking. This had to help contribute to Carstairs' panic, which I <laughs> I don't know. It made me laugh out loud. Carstairs is so unflappable and has really been unflappable through the beginning of this book. So to think of him just totally hysterical is um, something that I treasured. And I also really loved Melissa's naked meeting with Eric. I know she was covered with mud, but, you know, she was right there, right face to face, so to speak. And then... We met Heloise, who was just as awful-seeming as you expect, and I loved the description that said she was cold, cold from the core out, and that's the only way you could be that well-preserved at 54. It really, well, I I know this sounds like a play on words, but it just came to mind naturally. It was chilling. <laughs> we also had Morales being a priest of an ancient religion that I obviously could not really pronounce, but um, I think I'll be forgiven for that. And then poor Bulo Porter Cowis. We never get to know anyone in this book very well other than Melissa and Eric and, of course, Don and Carstairs. But I did feel really bad when she was murdered. She seemed fairly harmless and fairly well-meaning and and it just, of course, adds one more layer of complexity to who is doing these murders. Well, obviously, we're getting close to the end of it because there are only six chapters. And here comes chapter five. This one is action-packed. It's got a little of everything. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Let's dive in. Chapter 5 
It is well recognized by the authorities responsible for law enforcement that students very seldom commit any very serious crimes, with the exception of attending college, and that a jail is not quite in tune with the reverent inattention to worldly matters current on a campus. Consequently, the sheriff's office, university substation, was tucked away unobtrusively on a residential street north of the campus and camouflaged under a green tile roof and behind spotless off-white walls. Even the steel bars on the windows were fluted and painted black to imitate ornamental iron grills. But then, in Hollywood, they have a habit of disguising the functional purposes of many buildings— both public and private, as witness a movie house that looks like a Chinese temple, a movie star's home built in the style of a Venetian bordello, gas stations designed on the igloo principle, and a funeral parlor, the facade of which might be mistaken for the entrance to a racetrack or an amusement park. Humphrey dragged Morales, who was very much on his dignity now, up the neat narrow walk and in through the polished oak doors, Joan trailed negligently along behind them. The receiving room of the substation was as clean and barren and impersonal as a military adjutant's office in a staging area. There were some chairs and a bench and a uniformed deputy sitting behind a long, low desk with four telephones, a ledger, and an inter-office communicator on it. The deputy had the air of a man who wouldn't know quite what to do about it if something did. Morales advanced to the middle of the room and stopped short and looked around to make sure he had everyone's undivided attention. Now, he said impressively, he reached inside his shirt and brought out an oblong packet of yellow-oiled silk. The silk rustled slickly as he unfolded it. He handed the papers inside to Humphrey. What? said Humphrey. Doan looked over his shoulder. The top sheet contained a photograph of Morales, some fingerprints, and a very impressive gold and ebony seal. This is in Spanish, said Humphrey. Can you read it? Morales asked. No. Morales snorted. Is there no one in this pigsty who has any culture? Humphrey glared at him and then nodded to the desk deputy. Call Hernandez. The deputy flipped the switch on the communicator. Hernandez, front and center. One of the doors at the rear of the room opened, and a thin, gray-haired man came in and peered at them through thick, horn-rimmed glasses. Read these, Humphrey ordered, handing him the papers. They belong to this bird. Hernandez scanned at the top sheet. Well, he said suddenly. He looked curiously at Morales. He's a captain. That's a heavy rank in the Coahuila State Police. What? Humphrey said incredulously. What police? Coahuila. It's a state in Mexico, right below the border. Hernandez was reading the next sheet. Hey, here's a letter from the Mexican ambassador to the United States asking that the guy be extended all aid and courtesy. And here's another saying the same thing from the American ambassador to Mexico. And here's one from the State Department, and one from the Mexican Department of State. And, whoops, here's one from the FBI. You'd better drop this guy quick before he burns your fingers clear off. Are those about a bird named Morales? Humphrey inquired, still incredulous. Hernandez flipped back to the top sheet. 
Nope, the guy's name is Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz. But Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz has this guy's face and this guy's description. I am Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, said Morales. Morales is merely an alias I adopted. Are you satisfied now as to my real identity? If you like, you may call the Mexican Council for Los Angeles. He knows me. Humphrey stared at him, goggle-eyed. Well, what's the big idea? I mean, going around acting like a janitor and a thunderbird and whatever. May we have a little more privacy? Sure, come along. Humphrey led the way through another door at the back of the room and along a short hall into a smaller office. Take that chair, he said. Now what? Wait a minute. He pointed his finger at Doan. We can't use you. Scram. No, said Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz. I want him to hear what I say. I have my reasons. Oh, all right. Get going. I am concerned with a matter of great importance. I repeat, so you will understand it clearly, of very great importance. I get you, said Humphrey. In the state of Coahuila, there is a very ancient, very revered religious shrine. I will not identify it further for reasons that will become clear as I proceed. The shrine was built and blessed in the 16th century. In it, there were a number of sacred parchment scrolls. Yeah, said Humphrey eagerly. These scrolls are enormously valuable for a number of reasons. Historically, because of their contents. Commercially, because they were ornamented in gold leaf by several of the greatest artists then living. Religiously, because they are believed to have miraculous powers by the people who worship at the shrine. Yeah, said Humphrey, yeah. These scrolls were stolen. Aha, Humphrey exclaimed. They must be recovered. I repeat, they must be recovered. You bet, said Humphrey, positively. I can see that. Who hooked him? Horace Trent. Yeah, Humphrey chortled. I knew all the time. What? Horace Trent. Yes, Eric Trent's brother. Well, 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 said Humphrey. Horace Trent, Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz said, claims to be an archaeologist. He specializes in the theft of ancient objects of art of one sort or another. If he can't steal them, he fakes them. Eric Trent sells them for him. I knew it said Humphrey. I knew it all the time. Horace Trent, Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz went on, is in jail now in Mexico, but he sent those scrolls, disguised as weather maps, to Eric Trent before I could find him and arrest him. Again, I must emphasize that it is of much more vital importance to get those scrolls than it is to arrest these two criminals. Eric Trent is perfectly capable of destroying them to clear himself and, incidentally, his brother. That is why I assume the identity of Morales, the idiot janitor. I wish to watch Eric Trent without him having any suspicion of me. 
Why did you bust his instruments? The fool of a professor caught me searching Trent's office, so I broke the instruments to take his mind off the search. He did. Then I had to explain breaking the instruments by that nonsense about Thunderbirds so Eric Trent wouldn't get suspicious of my actions. Eric Trent is very clever and very dangerous. And how? Humphrey agreed. But say, you shouldn't have said all this in front of Doan. He's probably in on that scroll deal. If he isn't, he'll try to steal them himself from Trent. I'd better lock him up right now. No, he is the one who is going to get those scrolls for me. He is? Humphrey asked. Yes, he is in Trent's confidence. He can find out where Trent has hidden them. That is, if he doesn't already know. Man alive, Humphrey protested. You can't trust Doan. He's no straighter than a snake. Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz smiled in a very sinister way. This time he will be honest, because if he does not get me those scrolls, I will testify that I saw him kill Frank Ames. What? Humphrey yelled, coming half out of his chair. You saw... Don't. I hereby arrest you for murder. Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz sighed wearily. Please restrain yourself. I am not going to testify that he killed Frank Ames if he returns the scrolls. You're not, said Humphrey groggily, floundering around two laps behind. You're not going to. No. Must I keep repeating and reiterating that the importance of those scrolls is of absolutely paramount importance? The murder is a minor matter. But, but you saw don't. Certainly, I was the prowler. Uh, said Humphrey, completely lost now. Kindly pay attention to what I am saying. I was searching for these girls. At the time, Melissa Gregory surprised me. I thought Trent might have persuaded her to hide them for him. But you saw Doan. Yes. Oh, boy, said Humphrey, blowing out a long, gusty sigh of relief. At last I've got him. You'll have to testify against him whether you want to or not. I think you are a complete fool, said Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz. You had better refer again to that letter from the Mexican Department of State. I have diplomatic immunity. Humphrey stood up and threw his chair into the corner. He raised his fists and shook them impotently at the ceiling. Why does everybody I pinch have to have friends or immunity or drag or influence or some damned thing? Why? Why? What have I done to deserve this? When no one answered him, Humphrey lowered his fists to his sides, and for a moment he looked beaten. But then a crafty light came into his eyes, and he regarded Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz intently. There's one thing your diplomatic immunity doesn't protect you against. He said, if I accuse you of murder, unless you testify against Doan, there's nothing you can do about it. Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz gave a long and loud Latin laugh. He hooked out an arm and pointed a finger at himself. Me? Of murder? Me? Tell me, please, who have I murdered? Frank Ames, Humphrey said. 
As a matter of fact, I could whip up a pretty good case against you. Already you've confessed to being the prowler. That puts you on the scene. All I really need to prove now is intent and motive. Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz started laughing again. When he had finished, he spat out one word, Ridiculous! And then, drawing himself up, crossing his arms on his chest, and patting one foot impatiently, he said, And what about Beulah Portocawis? I suppose I am supposed to have killed her too? Maybe I disguised myself as a sun lamp or a permanent waving machine and sneaked into Heloise of Hollywood's beauty salon? Maybe, said Humphrey. And maybe not, said Sebastian Rodriguez E. Ruiz with a positive air. Do you happen to know a most attractive young graduate student at the university named Shirley Parker? Well, whether you do or not makes no difference. Miss Parker is special. She is taking her master's in psychology. She is writing a thesis on sexual behavior. At least sexual behavior has something to do with it, and I am trying to help her by providing her with material. Well, it so happens that at the precise time and moment when Beulah Portokawis was killed, I was embarked on a little matter of research for my friend Miss Parker. I was, in fact, in the company of a most attractive young blonde, who, though for the moment she shall be nameless, could be induced, I am sure, in view of the pleasure she seemed to derive out of the assistance she gave me in my research, to testify at the proper time that... What? Humphrey interrupted. Get to the point. I have an alibi, Sebastian Rodriguez E. Ruiz told him. An ironclad alibi, as you stupid Americans say. Accuse me of killing anybody or anything and I'll sue you for libel, slander, false arrest, both malfeasance and malfeasance in office, but mostly for malicious prosecution. Accuse me of something, just dare. I'll sue you for $100,000 or maybe $1 million. Rot. Humphrey came back at him. Nonsense. If you refuse to testify against Doan, I'll arrest you just as fast as that. And he snapped his fingers. In fact, he shouted, now completely beside himself with rage and frustration, I'll arrest anybody I want to for anything I want to so long as I, as I wear this badge. He pointed to the shield on his vest. With an unobtrusive but nevertheless lightning-quick motion, the Mexican reached over, jerked off the shield, and threw it to the floor. Your outbursts are distasteful to me, Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz informed Humphrey. I shall leave now, but I advise you to remember everything I have told you and to act accordingly. I do not propose to be thwarted by your stupidity. Come with me, you. Don followed him meekly along the hall and out through the receiving room. Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz stopped on the steps and nodded coldly. I shall expect you to search out those scrolls and turn them into me at once. You just go right ahead and expect, Don invited. Aren't you going to do it? No. Did you hear what I just told Humphrey? Yes. Well, that was a very interesting story, said Don. 
Of course, there was one little discrepancy in it. Eric Trent doesn't have a brother named Taurus. In fact, Eric Trent doesn't have any brothers at all. Goodbye for now, Sebastian. I'll be seeing you. It was nine o'clock when Doan came in the front door of the Pericles Pavilion. He had just spent a couple of hours talking long distance to Mexico City. This is a hazardous occupation, which besides time and money requires persistence, patience, a loud voice, an extensive vocabulary, and a strong constitution. Right now, Doan was dragging his heels. The door of the Aldrich's apartment opened, and the duplicate Aldrich faces superimposed one above the other like carbon copies peered disapprovingly out at him. Good evening, said Doan. The Aldrich's continued to peer, in silence. Doan tried again. Good evening. The Aldrich's said, We do not approve of murder. We do not feel that we can any longer acknowledge your existence. Their door closed. Immediately it opened again. Or that of your dog, said the Aldrich's. The door closed. Doan shook his head and went on up the stairs. He knocked on the door of Melissa's apartment. There was no answer. He went up to the third floor and tried Trent's apartment. The door was unlocked, and he opened it. Carstairs was lying on the Chesterfield, with his head dangling over one end and his tail over the other. He was snoring. Doan went in and looked around. There was a note fastened to the lampshade with a bobby pin. Doan read it. It was from Melissa, and it said, I am going to the Get Acquainted dance at Dulwich Hall with Eric Trent. I persuaded Carstairs that I didn't need a bodyguard just for that, because after all, Eric isn't the murderer, is he? Under this, in different handwriting, was one word. No. Doan studied that. No, uneasily. He was wondering just who wrote it. After a moment, he put the note down and took the large volume with the Greek title from Trent's bookcase. He opened it with an air of wistful anticipation. It was empty. Oh, hell, said Doan. The telephone rang. Doan picked it up. Yes. Is Eric Trent there? No, this is Doan. This is Eloise of Hollywood. Where is Eric, Doan? I don't know. Well, suppose you find out. Okay, said Doan. And when you do, tell him I want to see him. I mean, tonight. Okay. Up at my house. Tell him he can bring that Melissa Gregory mess along. I know he's with her. Okay. And after that, you're all through. What? said Doan. I won't be needing you any more. I'll pay you up to the end of next week if you don't hike your expense account too high. Before I exit smiling, I should maybe give you an item or two of information I uncovered. I have all the information I need. Just turn in your bill. Okay, said Doan. Go find Eric now. Don't stop to get drunk on the way. What do you mean? drunk. You probably know the meaning of that word better than anybody I ever came across, Stone. I mean soused and stinko and looping and polluted like I've seen you more times than I can count on both the toes and fingers of all my customers. You're maligning me, 
said Doan. My mother wouldn't like to hear you talk about me like that. That is, if she could hear. Get going. Okay. Doan hung up, and then he reached down and put his thumb across Carstairs' nostrils. Carstairs reared up on the Chesterfield, snorting like a grampus. I'm not me, really, Doan told him. You're having a nightmare, and I'm a part of your bad dream. Carstairs looked at him incredulously, raising his eyebrows. You're still asleep, Doan said. The only reason you aren't resting peacefully is that you ate something that disagreed with you. Carstairs yawned, settled back down on the Chesterfield again, and closed his eyes. Dope! Doan shouted, and Carstairs jumped up alertly. Dope, 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 dope. You'd believe anything anybody told you. Come on, we've got business. Somewhere or other, T. Ballard Bestwick had picked up the idea that the student serfs under his sovereign's way would like to know each other at least slightly. This naive notion was treated with the contempt it deserved by the normal members of the student body, but that didn't stop T. Ballard Bestwick from throwing contests he called Get Acquainted Dances everywhere, anywhere, and incessantly. No one ever attended them but the bedeviled members of the faculty who were drafted into supervising them and assorted coveys of drips and drools who, upon their arrival, chose up sides according to their sexes, threw out battle lines on opposite edges of the dancing arena, and spent the evening smirking and sneering at each other in frantic frustration. Things were going normally when Doan and Carstairs arrived at Dulwich Hall, which was a dreary sort of place very appropriately named. Several of the faculty couples had ventured out into the no-man's land between the battle lines out of sheer boredom and were pushing each other pointlessly around to a natty arrangement of Japanese Sandman, played by two feeble fiddles and a rheumatic piano. Melissa and Eric Trent were among them. Melissa wasn't exactly beaming, but Trent was making very heavy weather of it. His blonde hair was sweatily matted, and he was breathing through his mouth, and his eyes roamed ceaselessly in search of succor. He saw Doan and stopped short. Melissa half-tripped. Trent straightened her up and pointed at Doan. They came across the floor, avoiding the other rhythmic navigational hazards. "'Mr. Doan,' said Melissa, "'do you want me to be frank with you?' "'Sure,' said Doan. Melissa pointed. "'He can't dance worth a damn.' "'I told you I couldn't,' Trent said. "'Who do you think I could have practiced with the last few years? "'Polar bears? You're the one who insisted I try.' I thought you were a man, Melissa said. I thought you could stand on your own feet. I didn't step on you. Just because I'm exceptionally agile, you didn't. I can't dance. Well, all right, said Melissa. I'm agreeing with you. That's what I just got through telling Doan. Why are you arguing with me? I'm not. You are, and if you don't stop, I'm going to call you something I told you I wouldn't call you. And if you do, I'll do what I told you I'd do if you did. Do you think you would? Melissa asked Doan. Yes, said Doan. If you're thinking of calling him what I think you are, whenever he hears that name, his strength becomes as the strength of ten. All right, then, said Melissa. 
I won't call you that, but you can't stop me from thinking it at you. Oh, yes, I can, said Trent. Let's postpone this matter, Doan suggested, before we get too metaphysical. I have a message for you both from Mrs. Heloise of Hollywood, Tremaine Trent. Is it printable? Melissa asked. Oh, yes. She wants to see you both up at her house, right away, or anyway, pretty quick. We're not going, said Trent. Yes, we are, said Melissa. I've got a few conversational tidbits I've dreamed up to try out on her. She got the jump on me last time. I can't think well when my feet are dirty. And anyway, I want to see her house. I'll bet it's something, isn't it? I don't know, said Trent. I've never seen it. Melissa stared at him. What? I started getting mad at Nome, Alaska, where I ran across the first newsstand I'd seen in four years. By the time I got to Seattle, I was steaming, and I boiled clear over before I arrived in Hollywood. We did our sparring in her lawyer's office. Melissa patted him on the shoulder. You're a good boy. Thank you. Don, what happened to Morales? Melissa says those names he used were just nonsense words. No such clans or gods or whatnot exist. That's only the half of it, Don informed him. Morales doesn't exist either. What? His real name is Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, and he's a detective from Mexico. Well, why did he smash my instruments? This one'll stop you, said Don. He smashed them because your brother Horace stole some scrolls from a church in Mexico. Trent just stared at him. Doan nodded. That's what he told Humphrey, and Humphrey believed him. But why? Because this Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz is a genius. I suspected that, and so I called up Mexico City, and they confirmed it. He is a positive certified genius at detecting things. If you don't believe it, ask him. Another detective, Melissa groaned. They're getting as thick around here as fleas on a chihuahua. When I started teaching here, I thought this was a general arts academy. But now it looks as though it's turning out to be a school for rookie cops. If I don't watch myself, I'll wake up one day in a police matron's uniform with my name changed to Maggie O'Flaherty. Trent turned to Doan. But about this Morales, or Sebastian Rodriguez y Ruiz, or whatever he calls himself, why was he pretending to be a janitor? I told you, said Doan. He's a genius, and genius is inscrutable. Melissa tugged at Trent's arm. Come on, I want to go see Heloise. Goodbye forever, said Doan. What? said Melissa. Carstairs and I have now taken our humble place among the faceless army of the unemployed and unwelcome. We have been fired. Oh, said Melissa. But we want to say goodbye to you. I mean in a big way. Wait here until we get back. You can dance with some of these girls. Doan shivered. Thank you, he said. Thanks a million, but no thanks. Well, wait at Eric's apartment then. It's a deal, said Doan. That is, it's a deal at the moment, but I'm feeling sort of restless, and I have a lot on my mind, and I don't know where I may end up eventually. The road up the canyon wasn't particularly steep, 
but its designers had done the best they could to make it appear so. It switched back and forth and doubled on itself like a snake with a stomachache. The headlights of Trent's car illuminated it only about one-tenth of the time. During the other nine-tenths, they swept pretty but aimless swaths in the night off to the right or left. The engine grumbled and complained to itself in a deeply outraged way. "'For goodness sakes!' said Melissa, shifting to second before you pull a bearing. "'I might have known it,' said Trent. "'Known what?' that you'd be one of these females who aren't satisfied with just backseat driving. In addition, you've got to run in a lot of senseless lingo you picked up hanging around garages. Pull a bearing. Well, people do. Not people named Trent. Melissa looked miffed. I'm not as bad a backseat driver, she said, as you are a dancer. I told you I don't like to dance, Trent informed her. Also, I'm out of practice. He took his eyes off the tortuous road for a moment and gave her a little smile. But let's stop quarreling. As far as not liking dancing is concerned, I have this to say. I almost enjoyed dancing with you. If there hadn't been anyone else there, and even if there hadn't been any music and we'd just been standing there, I think I really would have enjoyed it. Melissa turned to him, but her lashes covered her eyes. I wonder why... "'Yes,' said Trent. "'I wonder.' The smile disappeared from his face, and for a moment he looked painfully serious. "'I don't suppose it had anything to do with the fact that you were very close to me and I had my arms around you, and all of a sudden I had the feeling—' "'Does Heloise of Hollywood make you feel that way, too?' Melissa interrupted impishly. "'Oh, stop it,' Trent said. Can't a guy get even a little bit sentimental with you without, well, just without? Melissa had to turn her head. Her shoulders were shaking with chuckles. I suppose you'd get even more sentimental if I called you hand. Oh, don't you dare choke me. Look out. Grab the wheel. What are you trying to do? Kill us both? A cliff jumped out at them and then jumped back in place when Trent, whose hands had been off the steering wheel and around Melissa's throat, grabbed the wheel again and gave the car a twist back to the road. The headlights swished around like a scythe and the tires squealed on a cutback curve. Go slower, Melissa cried. We're going to pass Heloise's place without seeing it. I can't go slower, Trent said, without backing up. Wait, 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 Melissa shrilled. I think that must be it. Clear back up there. Look for the gates now. That's what I'm doing. You missed them. I did not. Oh, why do you have to be so stubborn and stupid? You must have missed them. You just weren't looking. Well, you'll just have to turn back around. Two fat, high, white brick pillars swam smoothly at them out of the night. Yes, said Trent gently. Yes. Oh, shut up. Trent turned off on smoothly oiled macadam. The road dipped down and then went up in a rush. Trent shifted into second and they ground dismally upward. Gee, said Melissa. Look. They were up on top of the butte now and the house was waiting right there, poised and ready to pounce. It was enormous squared off solid and dark against the sky, 
throwing a sullen shadow in deference to the moon. Trellised vines crawled sinuously back over the side walls, and the few lighted windows were like sly, peeping eyes. There's one thing I'm missing, Melissa observed, and it bothers me. I wonder where Boris Karloff is. The road circled and widened at the front of the house. There was no veranda or porch. There were six wide stone steps leading up to an immense arched doorway sunk deep in the smooth stone. There were lights behind the thick-walled porthole windows on either side. Trent stopped the car, and he and Melissa got out. The wind was soft and cool in their faces, and the moon seemed very far away. Their heels clicked lightly on the macadam and scraped a little on the stone steps. "'What do we do now?' Melissa asked. "'Yell, ahoy the castle, or blow ourselves a fanfare?' This seems to be a bell, said Trent. Chimes played a lingering low melody somewhere inside. The house brooded and waited in utter silence. Well, said Trent after a while helplessly. Well, hell, said Melissa. She raised her fist and smacked the door one. It swung back noiselessly. Glug, said Melissa. Aren't we just having more darned fun, though? They were looking the length of a hall. It was a story and a half high, and the walls and ceilings were painted a dead white. The floor was black polished oak, and there were white rugs spread along it like grotesque giant footprints. Homie, Melissa commented. Let's go in. They started along the hall and their footsteps started following behind them in tapping echoes. Melissa took hold of Trent's arm. There was a door to their right and a door to their left. Both were closed. Trent and Melissa went reluctantly past them, and then Melissa said, Wait, there's a light behind that one. She rapped on it. The silence seemed to stir itself slightly, but there was no real sound. Melissa tried the long wrought iron latch on the door. It clicked, and the door moved back, softly reluctant. The room was a library. The windows from ceiling to floor were lined with shelves of books. The books looked like they had been taken out often, and dusted and put right back in again. Facing the door at the end of the room, there was a desk that was a solid block of black wood as big as a dining room table. Heloise of Hollywood was sitting behind the desk. She was wearing a blue tailored dress, and her hair was meticulously upswept. Her head was tilted a little to one side, and she was staring at them with an air of polite, dead interest. Oh, Melissa murmured. Very slowly they advanced, holding hands like reluctant children. One of Heloise's hands... The nails were polished in appropriate purple, was lying on the desktop with the lax fingers just touching a fat, ugly automatic with a snub nose. Trent and Melissa were closer now, and they could see the very small, neatly dark hole in her left breast. Blood had darkened the cloth of her dress below it, but it was hardly noticeable. She shot herself, said Melissa. Her voice croaked ridiculously on the words, and she swallowed hard. No, she didn't, said Trent. There's no powder burn on her dress, and that's an eight-millimeter Mauser on the desk. It would make a much bigger hole. Would? 
<clears throat> Would a 22 make a hole like... like... Yes. Oh, my, said Melissa. Don't said my prowler had a 22. Well, there's one thing, said Trent slowly. Humphrey can't claim Doan did this. He's not here. But you are, said Melissa. And what's more, so am I. The telephone rang. It was on a circular stand at Heloise's left hand. Trent and Melissa waited with a sort of dread fascination for her to answer it. She didn't. It rang again. Melissa walked gingerly around the desk and picked it up. Hello? A voice like thick plush said, Good evening. This is T. Ballard Bestwick. May I speak to Heloise? Well, said Melissa, no. I beg your pardon. You can't speak to her. I mean, she can't speak to you, which amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? I don't think you understood me, young woman. I am T. Ballard Bestwick. I'm the president of... I know. I work for you. What was that? I teach at the university. What's your name? Melissa Gregory. Well, it's about time. What? said Melissa blankly. I was just calling Heloise to apologize for your brazen behavior. Now that you're up there, you can do it yourself, and you'd better be very humble about it, young woman. There's a moral turpitude clause in your contract, and if you don't let other women's husbands alone, you're going to find yourself involved in a serious situation. The line suddenly crackled. T. Ballard Bestwick hadn't hung up. There was no dial tone. The line was dead. Melissa turned her head slowly to look at Trent. What's the matter? Trent demanded. Somebody cut the line. The lights went out. Eric! Melissa cried. Oh, Eric! She grabbed him and clung to him desperately, both arms about his neck. I'm so scared, she whimpered. And you shouldn't mind. Just a few minutes ago, you said you liked to be close to me and have your arms about me. My arms aren't about you, Trent said, obviously trying to remain calm. Yours are about me, but it's all right, Melissa. Heloise won't mind now. Not anymore. The half door boomed shut and the lock clicked coldly and Melissa gasped. All right. Trent said. Start screaming. That's just what we need at this point. I've never screamed in my life, Melissa retorted, and immediately afterward began screaming her head off. Trent slapped at her. He missed her face in the darkness and hit her on the back of the head. Melissa stopped screaming. Something scraped very gently in the hall, and then without warning there were three shots, very close together, sharp and bitingly distinct. Instantly, there was another shot. This was a heavier, louder thud. After that, there was silence. It was not a pleasant or a comforting silence. Melissa breathed against Trent's coat collar with her mouth open. Something tapped lightly on the hall door. Doan's voice murmured, Trent, Melissa. In here, said Trent, the door is locked. The lock clicked again, and the shadows moved vaguely. Are you two all right? 
Doan asked. I guess so, said Trent. Come closer to the door here. I want to watch the hall. I chased the guy back inside. He's holed up in the house somewhere now. Trent and Melissa shuffled forward cautiously. They could see a vague, bent outline that was Doan. The barrel of his revolver gleamed a little in the dimness. He had the hall door almost open and was watching through the narrow opening. He'll run out the back, Trent said. He'll maybe try. Carstairs is out there. They waited tensely. Heloise is dead, Trent said in an undertone. Over at her desk, she was shot. Yeah, said Doan. I thought I'd better come up and warn her even if she didn't want me to. She thought she could handle the guy. She could just as well wrap up a tiger in a paper napkin. She had a gun. Sure, she had twenty servants, too. Where did they go? They're locked up downstairs somewhere, probably in the wine cellar. I've got no time to go fishing around for them now. I've got a hunch I'm going to get myself killed as it is. This guy is hell on wheels with that pistol. He mistook a tree for me a minute ago, or I'd be past worrying at this point. Carstairs let go with a bellowing halloo. The twenty-two cracked twice, precisely. Carstairs bellowed angrily right back at it. He's undercover, Doan breathed. If he only has brains enough to stay that way. The pistol cracked again, futilely. Carstairs let his bellow out another notch, and the whole night began to throb with it. Stay in here. Doan ordered. I'm going a-hunting, and I'm going to shoot at anything that even looks like it might move. I'm scared green of this guy. He opened the door wider. Stay right here. I mean it. Oh, why do I get myself into situations like this? I must be crazy. He faded noiselessly into the darkness.